Hello everyone, welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mim Fox, and I'm here with the beautiful co-host of As Per Usual, Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hello, hello. Do we tell them what we're doing right at this very minute in time? I Where feel like we? it is an over-disclosure, but we could. It's in, the, in the interest of transparency, where are we and what are we doing right now? Well, we could on, superficially say that we're at your house sitting on the floor uh, facing Justin on Zoom, but if you go a little deeper, we are actually sitting here under a blanket slash canopy surrounded by pillows and all because I forgot to bring my headphones with me to this recording session. I take full responsibility, Liz. And there are photos. We will, we will share a photo. We will share a photo because on Twitter. I feel like this is like the biggest joke. This is, it could actually be the, um, the pinnacle of my career right this very minute in time. I think this will surpass any sort of therapeutic intervention you've ever done, any sort of community-based measure of change you've ever created like really any publication I've ever written I think pretty much we've now reached our career pinnacle Mm. you know and folks out there this is what they don't tell you about podcasting that actually blankets and cushions work how weird is that (laughs) (laughs) it's great though to be actually doing this recording Liz this is one we've been waiting for a long time for this is exciting so what did we do last year, at the end of last year? Tell our listeners. So because we take your requests so seriously, our beautiful listeners, we've noticed over the last two years a common request has been for stories or an interview with forensic social workers. So always with you in mind, we managed to find two wonderful forensic social workers who were willing to talk with us and not only willing to talk with us and tell us a story or two, but we got to actually interview them in the new forensic medicine building at Lidcombe. Look, it was actually such an amazing day, wasn't it? Like we, they showed us round. It's brand spanking new. So they've redesigned this incredible facility and Every element of it, they were thinking about the grieving person and the grieving family in mind, right? Like for you and me who don't mind a little bit of grief and loss in our clinical work, um, this was like a dream come true to actually be in a space that really spoke to the needs of the grieving family. It was incredible. And I think only a couple of social workers could just ooh and ah over viewing rooms. (laughs) <laughs> because and we'll, that the social workers will talk a little bit more about the design process in the conversations, but just briefly, Mim and I walked into these spaces that were so family friendly that allowed such I, there was class and dignity in the design, and I just walked away with such viewing room envy. I don't know about you, Mim. Oh, absolutely! It put to shame any mortuary I've ever worked in. Uh, I won't name the hospitals, Liz, but this was like the pinnacle of viewing spaces that exists. So that was really impressive to be a part of. And also, just so everyone knows, this was such an amazing conversation that we had that we're actually going to split this episode, split this discussion over two episodes. So what we're going to play for everyone today is the first half 
of the discussion that we had. Um, we'll come back at the end and then we'll carry it on into our next episode as well. And not only that, not only not only do we have a one hour long conversation with them that's spread over two podcasts, but we've also got a blog piece. Yes. That Peter Burke, one of the forensic social workers, has kindly written for us that will also be included. And wait, there's more. They have also shared their model of care, which is a really amazing document that actually outlines the framework in which the service works from um, for all your, you know, for, for all of you to share and read and learn from. So what we might do is um, have a listen to the first half of the episode and first half of the discussion and we'll see you on the other side. And we're not going anonymous on this one, people. The two social workers that we're interviewing is, as I've already said earlier, Peter Burke is one of the forensic social workers. And the other forensic social worker is a senior forensic social worker, Colleen Fitzpatrick. That's right. So um, enjoy, everyone. We'll see you at the end of the episode. Welcome, Peter and Cole, to... uh, to this conversation with us today. We're so excited to be here with you. I wonder if you can both introduce yourselves and let our listeners know exactly where we are sitting today. Okay. Thanks for having us. Um, My name is Peter and I'm a forensic medicine social worker and today we're talking to you guys at Lidcombe. And I'm Colleen. I'm the um, senior social worker here at Lidcombe and we're at the forensic medicine facility here in Sydney. And we are both so excited to be talking with you because it's been a few months in the in the planning to get here. And uh, one of the things that um, we've been talking about, Peter, you and I, is about the work that you do here. But you've also written a wonderful blog that will also be included in this episode. Um, and we'll, we'll link all those later. But as Mim said, we're really interested in what does a typical day look like for you two? Well, there is actually no typical <laughs> yeah. day when you work yeah. at forensic medicine. You are you really don't know what has happened overnight and who has been admitted and what cases we will be working with and that's there's a lot of one-off social work that occurs when we're working with families, you know, those first meetings, you're meeting families um, over the phone. We might have a we do have a police report from the coroner and we have that piece of information but you know we're ringing families and making admission phone calls and talking to them to let them know that their relative has been admitted and that we are the person that's going to be working with them throughout the process during that initial triage process in that initial phase when we're trying to work out what pathway will happen there's generally two pathways there's the examination pathway and the certificate pathway. So everyone who is admitted here doesn't necessarily go on to have a post-mortem examination. Mm-hmm. And under the Coroner's Act, we are, you know, we need to do the least invasive examination to determine the cause of death. So, And I think that that first phone call is really important because sometimes families don't they don't know the process. They, sometimes they don't know where their loved one has been taken to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so when you make that first phone call, it's um, letting them know who you are, that I'm going to be here with you, guiding you through this week. Um, you can ask me any questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Um, you give them a contact number and you just reassure them that there is someone there um, not far from where their loved one is and will make sure you know what you need to know. I like that it's the person who rings, the social worker who rings is the one that's going to be escorting them through that, the, the identification process in some cases, but also the viewing in some cases, Peter? Yeah, that's right. So um, part of the coronial process, there is a formal part to that and that, that is an identification. So um, we would facilitate that with families and we would um, meet with them. We would then talk about that process, but then also um, at the same time, um, reassure them and encourage them that this time is for you as well. You know, they may not have seen their loved one since they had passed away. If it was sudden, um, you know, there's no warning, there's no, you know, they've, they've just been given a message, you know. So when they come into us, we, we, um, we do have to facilitate the formal ID, but we also want it to be about them and having that time. Sounds like there's actually a double shock for families that when the first shock is that the person has died, and then there's a shock that they've come to the coroner and that they actually haven't just gone to a funeral home to be buried or cremated. There's actually this next level. Mm -hmm. And so when you're making that first phone call, is that actually, is it shock you're, being, you're meeting in families or is there some other emotions there that you're hearing? Yes, but there's actually another layer to that because there's police involvement. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of families, they've had no involvement with police. And that can also be quite confronting and it can be intimidating. And confusing. Mm. Why are the police involved? Yeah. You know? And they're the little things that, um, with a bit of reassurance and support, we explain to them because it is a complex um, mm -hmm. process, um, a, a coronial matter. So that's what we do. We, we try and explain that um, and, and soften it in a sense that, you know, there is someone there that if I don't know what's going on, well, then Peter or Colleen has called me. They'll explain it. So they would have met with the police prior mm. to your phone call, though. That's yes. that they've usually had that conversation with the police and then you then will contact them. That's correct. But going back to your question, Mim, about the emotion that we're met with, yeah, you get a variety. You, everything you can imagine is part of that work where we ring someone. You might get someone that's just heartbroken and unable to speak to us and they might say look you know can I nominate another person in my family to be that point of contact and definitely that can happen but you might get someone that's just you know angry you might get someone that's they've charged in this building and they're in the foyer and they're standing in front of us and they're saying I want to know what's going to happen and I want to know now and I'm not leaving this building until I get an outcome or you might get some people that actually cannot even answer their telephone. Mm. Their distress manifests in so many different ways. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 So you can never really assume to know what, how anyone's going to react. Um, it's just it's about meeting with them at, at where they're at and um, 
being the best you can for them at that time. So we get all sorts of different um, reactions and responses. But, you know, what we know is that um, that's shock, that's grief. You know, what they're going through, they probably haven't slept. Um, so it's about trying to get that connection um, so that there's a, there's a trust um, there. Um, and essentially that's what we, we, we hope to do. And what we're using there is crisis intervention skills, where we're engaging with people where they're at and we're attempting to restore cognitive and emotional control for them. Because one of the things that we know about crisis intervention is that people, because it's a point of crisis, are limited in their abilities to, say, think th something through as rationally as what they would perhaps yes. outside of this event. Yes. So I would imagine that a lot of the work that you're doing is um, having to support them in that and guide them through mm -hmm. the process and maybe even repeat things mm -hmm. sometimes. Oh, yeah. Often. Yeah. Yeah, just the ability to be able to retain the information that we give. Um, families don't always have that. They're exhausted. They're shocked. They're, they're, they're in disbelief. It's like a fog. Um, so that's why having a forensic medicine social worker to make that initial call and say, I'm going to make sure you know what you need to know. I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. And we'll work through this week together. So let's, let's talk about what happens when a family turns up at this building. Yeah, so what's the, where, talk us through how families actually, because we're sitting here in this state-of-the-art, gorgeous viewing space, I have to say, which there will be listeners who are going, how can you call a viewing space gorgeous? But you were telling us earlier that you were heavily involved, Cole, in the um, consultation process for yes. this space. So can you describe the space for us why and how it's designed in the way it is and then how a family travels through it? Mm -hmm. So we're on the ground floor and there's reception as you come in through the main doors. And when you're standing at reception, there's some rooms on the right-hand side and we call them our consultation rooms. And they're a private space for families to come and sit in. So if someone's preferably... They've arrived with an appointment and someone's, you know, everything's organised and we're ready to facilitate that appointment, whether that's a viewing or a visual identification. So the social worker would be downstairs waiting for them. We've got a little office down here that we call our hot desk. So reception would ring us and say, your 11 o'clock appointment has arrived. I've popped them into the consultation room and we would then go out and meet them in the consultation room or we may meet them in the foyer. And then I would just explain to them that we're going to move across to the left-hand side of the building where we have our viewing corridor. And we've got three viewing rooms when you walk down that corridor and they're all on the right-hand side of the um, hallway. And on the left-hand side is three ante-rooms and they're just small, well, they're not actually small, they're actually very generous family waiting rooms where we can sit eight to 10 people comfortably. And they're very beautifully furnished. There's natural light, there's courtyards with beautiful trees and gardens and it's, it's a really um, well thought out space for families. You know, the architects really listen to the social workers and we feel as though, we feel really pleased for the families because it, it, um, 
it reflects the importance and the value that we place upon them. When they've got a beautiful environment in which we're meeting them, it is, it's, really, um, it's really validating and it, it says, you know, this really matters. What we're doing here matters. That is so true. I mean, both Liz and I have worked in um, hospitals where mortuaries are the darkest, dankiest mm. places you can go. <laughs> Usually near the garbage facility, I've yeah, found. Yeah, or near the, the cafeteria, in my okay, experience. Yes. So, um, so that's great. That's a, and that's a fantastic to hear that the social workers were so involved in the consultation. So, and one thing that struck struck us while we were walking through were these beautiful courtyard spaces that you can look out onto, where there's, you know gorgeous plants and the mosaics on the walls and the colours are all these very soft, light colours. Calming. Calming colours. Mm, yeah. Soothing colours. Yeah. Natural greens and whites. So when the family comes in and they're sitting in one of those uh, anti-rooms um, or the consultation rooms, what's the conversation that's happening there that you're having with them? Well, this is our one-off engagement you know that we were talking about that we're meeting with families and we've probably never met them before we have very little information about who we're meeting so we're going in to say you know introduce ourselves talk to them about whether they're here to complete a visual identification with the New South Wales police and forensic medicine social worker or whether we're here to facilitate a viewing and then depending on what we're doing, or it might be a visual identification and then a viewing. So there's probably three little of opportunities that are, you know, well, three social work services or activities that are facilitated in these rooms. So we would talk to the family when they arrive. We build rapport. We use a lot of nuances and there's a lot of um, scanning for who's in the room, the nonverbal cues, the verbal cues, um, engagement, and talking to the family around what is going to happen. So we set the scene. Thanks for coming. I understand you're here to do the visual identification of your relative. We need to go through this formal process with the New South Wales police officer. They're going to ask you some questions on that visual identification statement. Um, that will happen after we have taken you in to look at the body and to confirm that this is indeed that person, your relative. And it's often heartbreaking work because for the family, there is, you know, nearly in nearly all cases, they're hoping that the police have got it wrong and it's not their relative. Right. Because the death message hasn't been conveyed. We think this is your relative, but we need you to come in and confirm that for us. And it means that you have to be in the room. You have to come in. So there's, there's always trepidation, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And in that, when we, after we talk about what needs to be done with the police, um, I like to say to families that, you know, this is part of the process, but I want to acknowledge that this is your time to be here with your loved one. And that, um, you know, that's really, that's as important for you to have this time. It's a, it's a really sacred space. Um, so I think it's as, as uh, forensic medicine social workers, we're aware that, yeah, there is um, formal processes that are required 
but at the same time as important is the time that that family has and you know even just saying that and reassuring families that it's not just in out doing you know ticking and getting it all in order um, it's about them being able to connect again and um, so I think that that's you know I find as as a worker that's really important to me to make sure that families get that time um, you know and I'll often you know say to them that look um, I'll, I'll take you through but then I'm also really mindful that when I can see they're okay that, that I'd, I like to step back step away if they're feeling okay and they want that time and giving them privacy so these are all the things that you're thinking about um, you know when you're when you're doing something like this and it generally can go over the course of an hour would you mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. um, but I think as social workers we think about those things that are going to be long-lasting that you know may change um, this experience for families or add something to it so it's not just about process and and your eyes on the future in some regards you know that what happens at this point of time can have profound impact on yeah. their, their, their future. Absolutely. Let's try and get this as uh, humanely done as possible yeah. um, and give them some agency around it by the sounds yes. of it, Peter. Absolutely. Just that, you know, like you choose. You let me know if you want me to stay. That's or right. Or I'm going to give you your space because this is what you're needing at the time. It's giving them a little bit of, um, I guess, a little bit of control back in a situation mm. where they've lost complete control. And, um, and we want them to be able to make decisions that are enduring, that last a lifetime, that they, they think, well, I'm glad I got to do that. And, you know, I was able to say, I need to do this. And we are so privileged that we can provide that space for families to do that. You know, um, we've often talked about how in our, let's just say Anglo-Celtic culture, mm. To actually spend time with a deceased person is not often encouraged, right? And so for the families that you work with, many of them may never have had any contact with a, a, the deceased person at all. So there would be that this is not only this, this is my loved one, but this is the first time I'm actually going to be in the presence of a, of a person who's died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So part of your role is also around accommodating that. Mm. And yeah, and we do. I like, we'll say, we'll do little things like with a family, I'll, if you can see that they're particularly nervous um, or they say, I'm feeling really nervous and, and I'll be like, that's okay. We'll do this together. I'll go first. And it might be something as little as when you walk into the room, you put your hand on the deceased um, and, and to them it's their loved one and it's you're touching my mum or my, my dad. So it's okay, I can do it. You so know? you're all modelling, Peter. That's that, right, yeah. that it is okay. So, you know, do what you need to do. And sometimes people don't even know what that is until they get in there. So... Um, but would you say that, that that helps Cole? Definitely just being able to model that or lead them in. Mm. And then once you break that ice, um, it's beautiful what people do. Mm. What are some of the things that, that you've seen people do that, um, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> some families come in with their guitars and they stand around and they sing songs. We, you know, from an observational perspective, 
We can see that families come in heightened, they've got the physiological responses going on around trauma and grief and shock and it's often the worst day of their life when we're meeting them. So they're hyper aroused, they'll have you know, their sweaty palms, they'll feel sick in their stomach, they've got that heavy heaviness on their chest or they've got that terrible lump in their throat or, you know, they're crying a lot and they're just unable to contain that, that expressed distress. It's good to be able to, you know, sit with them through that. Maybe we do some grounding exercises if someone's really distressed and we encourage them to, you know, breathe in their nose and out their mouth and just bring it all back, slow it all down, encourage them that this is, you know, we're going to do something that is something that they will have choice and ownership over. But when we go into that room, there's often that outpouring of grief when they see their distressed, their, sorry, deceased relative. But then after, we notice that they go in and there's, they're heightened and then we can see that if you, it's kind of an inverted bell curve and they, they then gradually, that distress will start, the expressed distress will start to wane and then we can hear that the crying will quieten off and then often they start sharing stories about their relative and they're telling their, you know, the funny stories that happen or reminiscing, maybe not funny stories, they're just reminiscing about, do you remember when? And then we're also conscious of that. We're tracking them so that when we're, you know, we don't want anyone to leave this building or this viewing experience in that elevated state. We want them to leave when they're feeling as though they've, you know, they've had enough time to engage with their relative and as a family, but they're also feeling as though they're feeling, um, you know, a variety of responses, but often we're, we're told from families that they feel a sense of calm, that they feel grounded after their time with their relative and their time here at forensic medicine. So mm-hmm. that it's that whole sense of realisation that this is real as well. Mm-hmm. So there's so much that's going on for families in that, in that one hour that mm-hmm. they are here with us. And so much that must be going on for you as social workers. So you're observing, you're listening, you're getting a sense of the family dynamics yes. that are going on. You're getting yes. a sense of the story of when they last saw the person or yes. or what the, the state of the relationship was like prior to the death. All yes. of these things you must be just, again, on hyper alert, but wanting to present incredibly calmly as well because you're having to be, as you say, Cole, grounding and making them feel as calm as possible to do, as you say, one of the worst things that they possibly have to do ever in mm. their life. Mm. And we do model that. We model that, you know, and people do take their cues from others mm. around them, yeah. around a, how to behave in this environment because of our Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. We often aren't exposed to role modelling around how you manage a death let alone a sudden traumatic, sometimes, you know, the bodies are traumatically injured. Yeah. And there's that next layer of information to accommodate. There's one um, thing that I really enjoy doing in my job is when I have that 
I guess that privilege of being in that space with a family is when I do um, talk to the family about what their loved one might look like and because we do do that um, I like to talk about something I've noticed like their beautiful long eyelashes or gee they've you know they've had some some artwork done like they're covered in tattoos or and yeah. um, it's amazing that in some way it 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 helps you connect because at the end of the day just people you know and I'm doing this work because I, I truly believe in the value for other people I know that if I um, was in was a family that came if if I was the family member I would want to be um, greeted with someone who who saw my um, loved one you know notice their long hair or their tattoos that they obviously loved or or their eyelashes you know I just think that they're the things that naturally for me in this work come through and it does help me connect and it helps me connect with the family understand who they are but then they can also see that um, I want to know I'm interested I, I, I see you and I see your loved one yeah, there's a genuine genuineness in your response actually yeah, to that family. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great example of the um the engagement that we all work with when we're working with our families yeah. and the normalising and that empathic listening that that we provide our families as well and then the validation of their feelings. So there's also remote families, aren't there, whose um loved ones end up here, but they can't travel necessarily that you're involved with how does that relationship dynamic shift so I mean it does it does add another level of challenge but at the same time I think we 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 do different things I mean we have had um, people who have died that are with us and their their family might be overseas um, so, you know, you, you do use, you can use technology, whether it's a Skype or, um, so, so we try to um, facilitate any requests and also to think about what it must be like for them to not be able to be here with their son or their daughter. And so how can we somehow make that better? How can we make this this happen? So yeah, look, I mean, I've definitely done um, viewings over over Skype before, and um, you know, a mother might say to me, "Can you zoom into his, um, you know, to his face or to his hand?" Or she might, you know, remember a tattoo that she wanted to to see again. And absolutely, you know, absolutely, we can. Also, too, sometimes people might ask you to take a photo, you know. So, look, we very much are led by the families. And, you know, I, I don't feel like there's, um, there's many things that I've been asked that I haven't been able to do. You know, it might be like, can you get a lock of hair or do a handprint or, you know, so... I think we're quite open to um, families' suggestions on what they need and how we can facilitate that. I'd also kind of add in the end there that we're supported by our executive team to keep our families at the front and centre of the work that we do. Absolutely. It is a very family-focused 
um, organization where um, we're all trying to do the best we can for these families that we come into contact with. And it isn't just the social workers. No. And in a lot of ways, the social workers are really the face of a whole team. There's that does forensic mortuary technicians, there's the pathologists, there's our medical secretaries, there's you know our, our clinical nurse consultant. And then, you know, we've got police that we work with closely that work for the coroner. You know, we are... We get the privileged role of yeah, we connecting do. with we the really families. We really do. But behind us, there is a whole huge multidisciplinary team that are doing a, do usually doing this work for the same reason, yeah. you know. So that's why it's, um, it's, a, it's a great great service to work for. It, it, and it sounds like you two are being incredibly gracious because I think what also social work has brought to this is the humanity of it because many of the professions that you just described have training in different areas and although they want it to be um, family friendly, you can't tell me that that wasn't because social workers have also been part of this team and have talked a lot about the value of engagement at mm. this stage mm. and the impact that it will have on their grief process. Mm. And I think on one of our episodes I was telling Mim about a tour that I did to the old uh, forensic medicine and they were showing us photos of some of the amazing work that the technicians have done in reconstructing a deceased person who, you know, the one that I saw had been hit by a train. Mm. Now, on reflection, I think, well, when the family saw that person, they would have seen that they were a bit, you know, a bit bruised and had a few scars, but it would have been their son. Mm. And I don't think that that work would have been done without social workers actually saying this is incredibly valuable that the family do have time with their son and that it's, you know, that they can see that it is him. Yeah, and I think uh, um, as the social workers, we, we work out what it is the families need um, in regards to the viewing, what do they want to see, you know, and being able to talk to our colleagues, so our technicians who do this amazing work, um, you know, we can bring that together. So it's a bit of, it's, it's like a conduit between the family and um, the, the wider great team that work in forensic medicine. But at the end of the day, it always comes back to um, the best possible service and care we can give them. And, and I think it's also around what we've discovered in social work research too, right? so that we know about the importance of the work that you're doing and the grief process um, and that it needs to be nuanced according to the needs of that particular loved one or family. Um, we've contributed a lot to that space because I know like 10, 20 years ago, there would have been families that would have been discouraged from seeing their person by well-meaning police officers perhaps or the chaplain who, you know, patted the, you know, the mother on the hand and said, I don't think you should see your son like this. Yeah. We get that now. Yeah. And so part of your role then, Cole, would be to be working with the other t staff, I guess the police or whatever, around the, the importance of choice in, in viewing, right? So I think you were saying before that you always provide choice and... I think mm -hmm. you were referring to Dr. Jane Mole's work on in yes, this area. Yes, yes, when we're speaking to families if there's some ambivalence or uncertainty around whether they want to view or not. But then the ambivalence is around the family member, not the 
say the well-meaning police officer, for instance. Yeah. That's, I guess that's the difference that we're talking about, that sometimes families have been discouraged because of the discomfort of a... Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And see, what we know as social workers is that's not our decision to make. And we do, we do not know these people. So how are we possibly going to know what's best for them? So that's why we try to give them um, an informed... Um, we give them lots of information so they can make an informed decision. So we never assume to know what's right or wrong for people because we're all different, right? So I think, um, but it, it definitely does happen. And it's, it is well, um, well-intended people. But um, yeah, we know that, that that's, not, that's not what's best long-term for families. They need to make that decision themselves. Earlier you were saying that sometimes families do choose to not have a viewing with their loved person, but that you might, they might change their mind. What happens in those situations? Well, if the body's still in the building, then that we would, we'd talk to them about that. So they might come in and feel as though they, you know, didn't feel it was right for them, but they, you know, got in touch with what was going on for them and they actually decided afterwards that they would like to view the body. So if it was something that we could accommodate and facilitate, then certainly pre-COVID days, that probably wouldn't have been an issue and we would have, you know, facilitate, facilitated that, you know, additional viewing. But at the moment we are asking families to come together as one family to one appointment because of the you know, the whole COVID restrictions and minimising exposure. And there's been quite a, you know, there's a, we work in a different way now because of COVID-19. But we still also want to be able to accommodate families. And, you know, we know that there's families that aren't cohesive and it's not okay for them to be able to come together. So we will facilitate separate appointments so that families can spend time with their relative if the other family members, if there's that tension and hostility or it's not safe for that to happen. Before you were mentioning, Cole, that there are some families who would be distressed just by having the deceased person come here. So you mentioned, for example, First Nations families where they don't want the person to go off country. Yes. Um, how common is it that actually um, the act of removing the body from wherever they died is actually a point of distress in itself? Well, it, it happens mm. and I, families convey that to me and mm. they will say that, you know, it's not part of their rituals and we also want to provide a culturally appropriate service to everyone that mm. comes here to forensic medicine. So we work with everyone on a case-by-case basis within the constraints of the law, our workflow, our staffing, everything. There's so many, um, it's so multifaceted, um, the work that we do. But certainly we hear what people are saying and we try and come to some sort of compromise that enables, you know, we want to come to a, that, that common ground where they can tolerate what, what it is that they can tolerate within the constraints of the law. So that's part of our role as well is to kind of work with the family. And it's yeah. usually, you know, we do have a model of the senior next of kin, but in a 
in a First Nations family or even other families, that person might not, that senior next of kin under the Act might not be the spokesperson. It might not be appropriate that they are that representative for that person. They might not have the the cultural rights to be the person arranging the viewing or the burial or, you know, those additional aspects that occur with a death that's reported or even any death. There's a lot of advocacy that you do within this role um, on behalf of families. So if you, you're building that rapport initially with them um, and then hopefully they're bringing to you what they need, um, what's important to them culturally, um, and then us as the social workers trying to facilitate that and advocate on their behalf. Um, so it's, it's about you know building that rapport as well at the start. Um, but it, it can be quite challenging because um, it, it is a big system and also and explaining that sometimes families don't want to hear that you know we, we don't care about the process yeah. or your system yeah you know that's not our and it's um so you you are constantly being um, uh, I guess an advocate for your families and for the deceased as well um, within so many different constraints we are fortunate though that we have that pathway in which we can represent and feed back what the families want so the pathologists are you know they need to know what the family's thoughts are around the referral and the process and definitely the coroners as well the coroners want to hear what the families have to say they're they're really engaged we're constantly um, giving feedback to the coroners and the pathologists about families and what they want what they need and you know the pathologists want to know the 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 coroner wants to know so it it is it tries to be as family friendly as possible and um it's, you know, again, it's just working for what's best for the family within the system we're in. What a great start to this discussion, Liz. So I think we've left people hanging, wanting more, because I certainly do. Um, so, this we would just with the promise that there's another half an hour that's equally as fantastic not just that everyone while you're fresh out of this first half of the conversation get onto the website um, and we are going to upload the blog that goes alongside it and the model of care we don't have patreon not like other podcasts so you don't have to pay extra for this it is there for you on our website www.socialworkstories.com and of course on all our social media twitter instagram we're going to upload the links there as well so jump on enjoy all that extra content and also then we'll next month we'll release the second half of this really interesting conversation but liz before we go we actually have something to celebrate we do we are celebrating 250,000 downloads since we've begun we've got now 250,000 downloads that's a that have quarter occurred. of a million Liz yeah how did this happen you know what it just makes me feel so pleased to be a part of this global social work community right like that is just amazing that we're all out there together doing the best we can by the people that we work with and um, and the students that we're training to get out there and be part of this incredible workforce. I think 
go. This is not just about us. This is about everyone getting in it together. Well said. Well said. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening, listening to us. If you um, want to get in touch with us, please do so, www.socialworkstories.com or through Instagram or through Twitter. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye.